กับคนไม่ไอ้กับคนคนทุนคนทุนDeepwater Initiative podcast series, hosted by myself, Chantal Noah Forbes. This podcast will feature artists, academics, and educators whose work highlights the present ecological significance of indigenous traditions, customs, and former ways of life. Today, we are joined by transdisciplinary feminist scholar. Dr. Monica Modi. Monica's research interests include borderlands, transnational feminism, decolonization, embodied relational paradigms, and genre. Her academic writing has been published in numerous journals and anthologies, and she was recently the recipient of the Core Award for Best Dissertation in Women and Mythology. As well as the Nicholas Sparks Postgraduate Writing Fellowship at the University of Notre Dame, Monica holds a PhD in East-West Psychology from the California Institute of Integral Studies, and an MFA in Creative Writing from the University of Notre Dame. Monica was born in Ranchi, India, and is here today to discuss her dissertation work with us. Welcome, Monica. Your dissertation recently um, was awarded the Core Award for Best Dissertation in Women and Mythology at the Association for the Study of Women and Mythology Conference in New Mexico, and this dissertation contends with dominant narratives of Brahminical patriarchy continuing in the lives of women in India through the voice of decolonial feminism. So I'd like to start by asking you, um, who is Monica, the author, within this academic exploration, and what does it mean to speak from a decolonial feminist voice within a South Asian context? Yeah, I believe the dissertation really started taking shape for.、Um, Monica, the author, or to put it the other way around, Monica, the author who wrote the dissertation, really started getting born、um, at the juncture where、um, discussions of spirituality are often left out of scholarship.、Um, so um, I uh, remember feeling. That there were facets about South Asian culture and history that I wanted to explore、um, in the contemporary post-colonial context. Things that I believe believed it was really valid for、uh, people to、um, bring into the discussion of、uh, not just.、Um, How um, um, uh, certain patterns of relationships have uh, continued um, in the form of, for instance, caste formations, or、um, in the form of uh, 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 
patriarchal re- relations, patriarchal patterns of relations, but also uh, in terms of uh, religion and how different religions interact with each other. Um, so I wanted to talk about some of this, and I realized that I couldn't talk about them merely as political phenomenon, merely as rational phenomenon. I realized that there was something else that that, that I wanted to explore. Um, and and I needed to knew, do that, not merely textually. I needed to do that almost in the way of, in the by bringing myself into um, the discussion, by bringing my body into participation with whatever was going on, bringing my histories, my mother's histories, my grandmother's histories. Uh, so I, I remember there was a moment, there was a particular moment where I was just browsing through um, a particular passage in, um, well, I was browsing on the internet and I came across a particular passage in Gloria Ansaldua's Borderlands and she talks about how um, modern Western academia leaves out discussions of spirituality and it's some it's a way of exercising control. It's a way of uh, re-establishing, um, reifying certain binaries um, around um, knowledge production, and somehow there was there was something about that particular quotation that really it, it stopped me in my tracks, and I was like, yeah, I hadn't even felt I could talk about spirituality, but I realized that you know, in order to um, talk about um, the present, I needed to talk about the past in order to imagine a future, to envision a future, I needed to talk about um, what had happened. And and the the lives of women in India, of course, you know, it's um I mean I my life, my mother's life, it's 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 been shaped by certain narratives and these narratives come from both secular domains and from the domains of um the sacred. Um so that's um I would say that Monica, the author, was really born at that juncture where, um, um, yeah, spirituality and tradition come into conversation with more post-colonial uh, critical narratives. And um, and the other piece is also um, the um, the other piece I would say is. Um, the piece around body and vitality, because again, um, having come from a more traditional um, academic background, I was taught to see in very cognizantric, taught to understand in very cognizantric ways. So, uh, who is the author when she is in? really in conversation with her body where she's allow, allowing the vital impulse and pulses that are moving through her body to really, you know, become a part of her scholarship. Um, that would be the first, the answer to the first part of your question. And yeah, the, 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 the 
word decolonial in the South Asian context has been very interesting for me because the words that um, the word and the lens and the paradigm that's most often used there is of course post-colonial um, but and the word uh, decolonization um, as far as I'm using it comes from more um, Central South American uh, praxis from Chicana Latina uh, purizations and there's a particular way in which for them it is again about bringing the past and the present and the future in conversation with each other um, and and this was a different formulation uh, from that uh, than the you know the 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 narrative that say post-colonial praxis puts forward where post indicates some sort of like a temporal break a temporal shift into a new kind of um, time while decoloniality implies that yeah there is an uh, an accretion there is a continuity right so for me um i think for decolonial feminist visions and voices in South Asia, that kind of accretion and continuity was very important to acknowledge because, um, yeah, the the folk and the autochthonous and the non-caste and the outside caste and the Dalit and the tribal voices, they've always been there, right? Like, it's not as though they've been left behind in some kind of a holy past. Um, uh, and along with that, uh, they've carried a kind of um, relationship to the earth and a connection to the earth that I think many um, secular, uh, so-called secular uh, domains of um, uh, theorization and academia have left behind. So decolonization in the context of India for me also means recovering that connection to the earth, recovering that connection to the earth, uh, uh, to the body, um, and, and understanding that our, the job of scholarship is not just to present and put forth a critique, but also a restoration, a reconstruction. Yeah, I really like that um, notion of academia uh, being a process of integrating all the different parts of yourself and then uh, using, you know, different theories and different systems of thought uh, to bring that um, through as one voice um, into a coherent story or, or a, a coherent um, picture that you're putting forward, uh, which includes present and past. Now, your dissertation makes use of a number of critical feminist theories. And I was wondering if you could just summarize um, for us some of the, the, the key theories that were really important to you um, in undertaking um, your research and just explain to us how they framed the actual research, research process. Mm. Yeah, and thank you for just articulating this notion of bringing all of ourselves into our scholarship. Because, of, yeah, that that um, 
I really sat with that a lot during the writing of the dissertation. And I struggled a lot with this issue of coherence um, because it, it's, um, and this is where I guess the, the theories that I'm going to talk about also become relevant, right? So the, one of the theories that really um, was extremely crucial for me was the, the whole Borderlands framework um, or the Nepantla framework that was developed by um, Gloria Ansaldua, um, who's a Chicana Latina theorist who has had uh, influence, a powerful influence on many different um, segments of scholarship. Um, and the, the Borderlands is this, it's, um, it's this in-between space it's a, it's a space that exists between different domains, different realities, um, two different structures, two different concepts that may appear to be opposites. Um, but what's really interesting, if you kind of go and look at this in-between space, that it's actually constituted as uh, an overlapping realm. It's not... It's, 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 it's almost a both and. It's a space where um, the two orderings of reality are both having an influence, which means that something completely distinct, a third entity, a third conversation is possible there, right? So um, the, the interesting thing about coherence was that I realized that it, yeah, um, the idea of integration or synthesis that uh, a borderlands epistemology is talking about is not a something static or stagnant because you know the the two orderings um, I mean the, the the borders keep shifting right like the borders are continually in flux even though we, um, when we are operating more from a, um, from a Cartesian, um, Newtonian paradigm, we tend to think that, you know, once the borders are laid out, they are stagnant. Um, but, but yeah, the shifting was really important for me to note in terms of how I was approaching even the knowledge and the writing that was emerging. Uh, and to make use of in the, the, the theory of the borderlands that comes from Ansaldua. And I also wanted to track that using the very genres that I was um, um, using to write. So I came into, you know, I came into academia as a poet and then, you know, to think about critical theory and social theory and then to think about narrative. So I wanted to bring all of these different things in conversation. And then Ansaldua herself has a name for this multimodal practice, which I think is a really, it's a, it, it is a powerful feminist practice. The practice, she calls it autohistoria theoria. Um, so the self in conversation with culture, instead of separating the two domains. Um, I was also really influenced by um, 
Aurora Levin's Morales's book on medicine histories because um, she's talking about the idea of telling history itself as a is a way of uh, uh, making medicine as a way of uh, making healing. So it's the 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 historian in some ways acts as a curandera on the behalf of the community. Um, I was also in conversation in my dissertation a little bit with Elizabeth Schusler Fiorenza, who's a theologian. And um, uh, first of all, she has this powerful concept called kairiaki. And kairiaki um, uh, is, is a way of looking at patriarchy, not just in isolation, but as one way in which um, multiple one one um it's seeing patriarchy as a part of a multiplicative system of oppressions so caste class religion uh gender ability bo body ability uh all of these come into play um so in some ways you can think of it as a counterpart of um you know the the, the theory of intersectionality only is describing more the social systems and how they um, are operating in a more nuanced way than than a sing singular way of describing oppression. Um, yeah, I was also really interested in the the concept of mother lines, and uh, Naomi Ruth Lewinsky talks about mother lines. Um, um, and, and the idea, again, is that we are not knowledge producers by ourselves. In, uh, we, are in all, we are always in conversation with our mother lines and with um, the, our feminist forces as we make knowledge and as we distribute knowledge. Well, yeah, thank you for bringing in that, that aspect of, of mother lines again. Um, understanding the past in order to understand the future. Now, these frameworks that you've sort of spoken about, um, derived or, or, or sort of structured uh, by using a, a combination of different feminist theories, uh, they challenge various modes of knowledge production. And I think we can we can see how you aim to do that through some of the examples you've given here. Uh, now, one of the things they challenge is um, in calling for a more relational way of understanding and connecting to the world around us. And we've already highlighted this uh, on the most basic level by saying that uh, you've attempted to take a more relational approach to uh, yourself as the researcher and recognizing different aspects of yourself. But now I'd like to ask if you can talk a little bit more about what the word relational means within your specific cultural context uh, and just maybe give us a small example of, of how you highlighted that relationality within your dissertation. Mm. Um, yeah, thank you for that question. It's, it's interesting because um, 
a lot of the times here in the West, in the Bay Area, people say um, the East versus the West. So the West is an example of individualism and the East is an example of collectivism, right? And um, what I found really fascinating was that having grown up in India and having navigated uh, these structures, um, these relationships that were often still uh, governed by um, spoken or unspoken rules around how to behave, how to dress, how to speak. So, so you know, dominational structures in some ways. I didn't have, a, 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 I would say, a, any kind of clarity around um, relationship or intimacy, I would even call it, right? Like the, the willingness and the desire and the ability to really be with another, um, recognizing that both of the, 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 the I and the you are constituting each other and in a relationship of equality. So um, for me, I learned a lot about relational paradigms uh, from um, indigenous researchers. I learned a lot about relational paradigms from the work of Sean Wilson and Bageli Chilisa uh, and um, 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 and um, Linda Tuhiveli Smith. Uh, so it's and and then once I learned it then I started realizing some things that were important to me. The first was uh, the, the relationship between the mind and the body and the spirit and the soul and emotions, right? Uh, and to give an example of how that would play, um, how, how that showed up in... Um, you know, some of the chapters that I wrote in the dissertation, I was, I started writing about ratas, which are uh, rituals that were carried out by uh, women. And, and initially, these rituals would be to celebrate the fertility of the earth. Um, and today, they have been co-opted by uh, different patriarchal formations in um, Bengal, where they are practiced, and in other parts of India. So um, women have forgotten or are not really allowed to freely remember what the power of these ritual ways of being in relationship with earth. But in, in my own writing and remembering, I allowed myself to, um, in, in some ways, really explore the roots and the meanings of uh, these um, practices. Um, and and, and I, another way would be to think of my writing itself as a ritual. Um, if I allowed myself to really think of uh, the dissertation itself as a conversation that I was having with the ancestors, for instance, how, how, how did that change, you know, the my positioning as the the um, the scholar who is sitting in the ivory tower, kind of doing this work by my by herself. So um, these are a couple of examples that I would give. Yeah. Um, 
that, that's really interesting what you just shared and and maybe you can just sort of confirm if, if I'm hearing you correctly but uh, in a sense what I heard is that uh, your understanding of relationality growing up was within um, the context of dominant hierarchical or patriarchal system so mm-hmm. relationality expressed itself often in that way and that um, following your introduction to an array of indigenous scholars from New Zealand to Africa um, to America, this helped you then to dig deeper in uh, not to, um, how could I put it, reinventing uh, a new relational culture within your own culture, but rather um, to reclaiming something uh, that's been there for a very long time, but not necessarily understood, again, due to current dominant structures that exist. That's right. Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, writing in a more um, Euro-Western perspective is about making something new. And a more decolonial perspective of writing is, in some ways, it's a remembering, right? It's a way of connecting the past and the future together. But I also want to say the reason why I was able to turn to some of the work um, by decolonial indigenous scholars around the world globally is because we share the experience of colonialism. We share the experience of colonization, right? So the the of course around the world um processes uh historical processes have unfolded differently um and they have um impacted um the the uh communities and the peoples of the land differently and at the same time there's something that has happened which which really did um uh, put in jeopardy the kind of knowledges that were being made, that were that were available, that were part of the the original matrix, so to speak. And so, to remember that there is a different way of doing it, you you kind of you kind of like yeah, turn to to people who who are already a little bit ahead of you. For me, there was something about, in particular, about the emphasis on the earth, which, which was really the draw to these particular methodologies that I'm referencing. Because, of course, even in post-coloniality, you know, you have the different traditions of talking back and speaking back and reclaiming, right? But for me, there was something about the grounding in nature and the grounding in earth, and and really like something that's the relational matrix that's arising out of the earth that was really powerful and that I wanted to bring forth in my scholarship. Yeah, that that's a beautiful image and metaphor that you've presented us with there. And it, um, I, I had this question, uh, you know, where I wanted to ask you, um, do you see your research as reclaiming an indigenous way of being within South Asian Asian cultural context. And I think uh, one of the things um, that we experience in a post-colonial world, uh, quote unquote, 
is uh, a disconnect from the earth okay. and a disconnect from um, indigenous spiritual practices of, of varying kinds within uh, different um, pre-colonial environments. And I think um, what I'm hearing from you is that within a decolonial framework, um, this is where we can perhaps bring back the essence of those indigenous practices uh, and reclaim a particular way of being, um, even, even if only in a symbolic manner. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. I would say that decolonization is a process. So the first thing is that the the way we um, continue to make those links, especially because we're moving around in a terrain where so much has been broken, right? Like where so many disruptions have, um, and where so much has already been disrupted. I think to see it as a process is really important. The, and the other thing is, I don't know. Um, yes, indigenous is an interesting term because indig indigenous has a connotation of knowing that you come from a particular land, right? Like and that land itself is in uh, conversation with your way of being. And um, what's really interesting is that I'm, I was writing this dissertation in the United States, not in India, but even more so, I was very aware, I became really aware during the writing of my dissertation that my um, ancestors themselves are migrants in a way. Um, both my father's side of the family and my mother's side of the family had seen a lot of uh, migration. Um, so then it, it, the, to bring the, the, question of indigeneity in conversation with um, migration and transnationalism then allowed me that that's what really allowed me to enter the conversation of being a border dweller, being a mestiza, being a nepantlera, right? Because I had to claim, yes, I come from somewhere and I had to claim, yes, there have been these histories. And I had to claim, and some of the histories I'm telling are not just mine. In fact, these are collective histories. And I'm also holding the hope for something else to emerge, um, which meant that, um, I mean, the reason why I'm saying this is because there's there's a lot of layering um, of um, history. And, and I managed to approach, I would say, some of them. And when I did, I found, okay, here's, some trauma, maybe that needs to be looked at, right? Like historical trauma, cultural trauma. But I would say that personally, for me, the it's it's ongoing work. Um, I wouldn't say I have some sort of an uh, indigenous spiritual practice to take to report, but I would definitely say something has been cleared, and the path ahead seems laid out in a way and it felt it did feel like the writing of a dissertation was kind of like laying down that path if that makes sense yeah it, it does make sense and um i like this point that you highlight about uh, having to claim um your history in in various ways and 
that doesn't always necessarily mean you're claiming all historical parts of yourself, uh, but forcing you uh, to claim something and to, to look at where you come from, from different perspectives, and to own that. Um, so much of living in a modern context, in a way, subversively um, ignores historical context because we're clinging on a day-to-day -day basis uh, to a lifestyle that is uh, homogenous and generic in many ways. Uh, and and in fact, it's it's looking back at prior lifestyles, prior rituals, uh, prior folklore, um, culture and arts mm -hmm. that, that helps us uh, remember that there is, in a sense, something to claim. It's, and it's interesting because, you know, I know that in India, these legacies, um, the folk legacies, the, the um, I'm, I'm, I was going to use a word, but I was like, I want to use a word more as an explanation. Yeah, the folk legacies have always been around. The villages, the, uh, the collective collective ways of being communities that's that's always been around right but i think the distinction is that it, and the distinction is in the psyche of the modern educated citizen and for the modern educated citizen it's almost as if they are part of a pre-modern existence right versus the modern citizen citizenry which is walking into the future which is rational and enlightened and and you know the the all the assumptions that are a part of uh, enlightenment thinking which became a part of uh, um the the post-colonial thinking because of the processes of um, colonization right and and the ways in which um, pedagogies educate educational systems everything was taken over um by um, the, the colonizer mindset. So I think in India, it's the distinction is really the pre-modern and the modern. And I also wanted to break that. I wanted to say, you know, if I'm talking about kolams, if I'm talking about vratas, if I'm talking about rituals, I'm not just enacting a superstition. I'm not just enacting something that my ancestors did because they did not know any better or because people in villages do because they are not educated enough. I wanted to be able to say these, there, there is a living meaning embedded in here, that there, these are living practices that actually did have um, meanings that were life-affirming, that were life-giving, and that had something to do with um, um, people's um, relationships to the land and people's relationship to each other in community. Um, and, and, and that because we are now in a contemporary moment where both our relationships to the land and our relationships to each other has changed, we might need to revisit some of these um, meanings, these practices. And that's also fine because Again, I've been taught that tradition is not a um, stat static thing, right? Part of decolonization is also recognizing that the, the only people who want 
tradition to remain stagnant are the the nationalists and the xenophobes and you know so we're not wanting to reclaim tradition in a way that reinforces rigidity that's not the point at all but how can we really think of it as something living something changing something shape-shifting yeah and and isn't this the point um overall of an oral tradition uh, e- even as a theoretical model in the sense that it's mm-hmm. it's orality um, allows it that flexibility uh, allows it to be uh, relived in in a new and different way in each generation and that each generation uh, builds on on what came before uh, without erasing uh, the knowledge garnished um, and and brought together you know by by various ancestors and uh, various lineages so Monica, I wanted to ask how this has practically influenced your life. Um, I, I got the understanding from you some time ago that this dissertation was really uh, transformative in, in, in so many different aspects for you. It, it transformed your understanding of academia. It transformed uh, your exploration as a writer. Uh, it transformed your spiritual life, your understanding of yourself as a woman. Um, having completed that process, h- how do you see it playing out on a day-to-day basis in, in some of the professional practices you're engaging in uh, and just also some of the personal practices you're engaging in? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Chantal. This dissertation, really, you know, writing it took a long time. And now I look at the years that I spent writing the dissertation, and I, and, and, and I honor that time that was spent in crafting it, creating it, researching, and in the transformation of stuff that was entailed because, yeah, it's, you know, any kind of uh, deep work that touches you at all these different levels obviously will not happen with the, you know, the click of um, fingers, the zapper fingers. So, um, yeah, um, I think the, I mentioned to you the auto-historia theory, the bringing to, the blending of genres, that opened up the whole different take on scholarship for me. Um, I already knew as a poet that I didn't want to enact, um, you know, again, the, the, the dry modes, the, the, I would even say the non-sensual modes of critical scholarship that uh, seem to be a given for much of scholarship, right? Um, I wanted to bring in the body. I wanted to bring in the spirit. I wanted to bring in emotions. And I wanted um, to... I, I didn't did not want to leave the mind out. I did not want to leave criticality out of it. So the putting into practice all of this f- for a sustained length of this work made me realize that yeah, this is this this is something that is something new, something different. This kind of like allows me to see reality itself as this multi-layered thing um, that uh, I can approach. From as a writer, as a scholar, um, from multiple 
levels. Um, yeah, um, the 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 clearing the the trauma work was a big part of it too, and one piece of it was um, just connection to the body. Um, and I have to tell you, I uh, could not have done the dissertation without my dance practice. And I was dancing at least once a week, um, almost without fail, during the writing of the dissertation. Um, and it's a you know it's a kind of a, a freestyle dance practice, um, a movement meditation that's called um, that's called uh, um, five rhythms that I usually practice. And uh, yeah, it's uh, that helped me again like regulate the energies that were kind of rising during the writing of the dissertation dissertation including ancestral memories including visions including you know the the releasing of the spine um um and um yeah i can't imagine going back to a different kind of academic i can't imagine you know um uh, why anybody would even want like a you know a university you know the univocal voice uh, linear homogeneous voice in terms of creating a uh, scholarship um, now wonderful um, and in closing uh, maybe you could just share with us a, a little bit of of what you're doing now in order to practically take this work forward and and how you're sharing it with others. Mm. Um, well, I have, um, there is a long-term project that I have, which is of converting the dissertation into a book. And it's, it's a really, it seems like challenging in the face of, you know, the rapid shift that the world is going through right now and the rapid shift that South Asia is going through right now. Um, what with, um, well, not just the current reality of, um, you know, coronavirus and the authoritarian responses to that, but also um, um, right before that, um, the... The, the government in power uh, had very repressive responses um, to certain protests that were happening uh, around India. Um, they, the, uh, in response to two citizenship bills that vastly restricted the rights, in particular of um, Muslim citizens. Um, so yeah, without going too much into that, you know, I'm like looking at what's happening in South Asia. I feel like there's a lot of uh, what I said, which still has a bearing on, um, you know, the the way uh, the relation, social relationships are structured in India. And I would like to uh, take this work there and be in conversation with um, uh, not just the thinkers, like thinkers, visionaries, doers, dreamers, everyone in India. And so one, one, one part of my work is really converting this into a book so I can uh, take, it, take it to India and allow it to really become a part of the discourse there. The other thing is uh, just allowing the different pieces to circulate. Um, so 
there is a journal, a, a literary journal that has asked me to talk about one of the poems. So I don't know if I was explicit, but poetry is also a part of the dissertation. So, you know, I have, I think, 13 or 14 poems that are part of the dissertation. So they want me to talk about the writing of one of the poems. And in the process of, you know, the, the how of the writing, I can also, you know, bring in um, some of the uh, other ideas I have about um, borderlands epistemology. Um, and, and yeah, I want to also be in conversation with the people who are uh, thinking about these things and thinking about decolonization and thinking about bringing um, the sacred and anti-oppression together in South Asia and in India and really establish more um, collaborations and uh, conversations. Well, um, thank you, Monica. I, I really appreciate everything you've had to share with us today. Um, and I appreciate the perspective of your scholarship, not only uh, the theoretical perspective, but your personal perspective, and also your cultural perspective. Um, coming from Africa, I feel that uh, debate about South Asian culture, uh, particularly culture in India, was, was very vibrant. Uh, and I, I have somewhat yeah. missed that within a, a U.S. context. And so um, I've enjoyed, um, you know, the, the little bit of time that I've had to spend with you to explore uh, your perspective on, on this um, important cultural part of the world. So thank you. Hmm. Well, and thank you so much for being a wonderful and thoughtful interviewer, Chantal. And, and thank you for again inviting me to think through some of these questions again um it's it's been a it's been a pleasure